So welcome to the AC Hive podcast. I'm Ralph Montague. I'm a director at ArcDocs and one of the co-founders of AC Hive. I'm joined by John Egan, who's the other co-founder. John, do you want to say hi and just a quick introduction about yourself? Hi, everyone. My name is John Egan. I'm director at BIM Launcher and co-founder at AC Hive. And I'm delighted to be here today. Looking forward to talking about innovation from the perspective of an actual startup building technology in the construction industry. Very good. Thank you. So today we have a fantastic guest with us, uh, a real rock star, I would say, in the AEC sector, Paul Doherty from the Digi Group. Paul, you've had a fantastic career from architecture, software, into designing and planning new cities major interventions in cities around the world, and you're a musician uh, on top of all that. Um, do you want to give us a quick introduction to yourself uh, before we get into the discussion about innovation in the AEC sector? Well, thanks for the invitation, both John and Ralph. And Ralph, uh, your 20 pounds is in the uh, mail for that wonderful introduction. Thank you. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, I'm Paul. I'm an architect, not a software architect, a real one. I can get sued. Um, and yeah, I've been a builder, uh, and done a lot of wonderful work, uh, over the careers. And, uh, through doing real practical pulling buildings up out of the ground, I needed new tools to, to try and do that. Uh, so I was pulled into a brand new startup, uh, back in the late nineties called Charles River Software, where I became a consultant to this brand new thing called Parametric CAD. Uh, we renamed it BIM. I uh, renamed our company Revit and Autodesk bought us. Uh, so yeah, I was part of the group that brought BIM to the market. Uh, in parallel to that, I was working on an online collaborative system uh, where you could find building products and projects and, and, and people in your local area uh, called Buzzsaw, which was supposed to be this online group. It's now uh, been taken over by this thing called 360. Uh, but it still has a lot of the roots uh, back into what we sold Autodesk with Buzzsaw. Uh, and then right after that, uh, you know, I followed the spectrum of how buildings go through a life cycle. And I got heavily involved with the facility management world, uh, where we created a product called Tririgo, which we sold to IBM, which is now one of their flagship products. So we had very good success in setting up, you know, software and tools for the industry, thinking that we were, quote unquote, disrupting it. I liked the fact that we were disrupting it from the standpoint that, we knew what we were doing. Uh, we had experience of hundreds of millions of dollars worth of construction coming up out of the ground. Uh, we, we know where the bodies are buried. Uh, we know where the lessons learned were. We know what best practices were. And that's when we can disrupt. And that's going to be a point of, you know, what is disruption and what is innovative and what's not, you know, as we move forward. But knowing that, uh, we discovered a technology after the IBM acquisition that was based upon a brand new system called Google Earth. Uh, it was originally a company called Keyhole, and one of my friends in Silicon Valley, uh, Remy Arnault, uh, was part of that group when they were acquired by Google. But he was always very frustrated with how Google Earth worked. Number one, it was free, so all architects loved it, you know, because what's not to like with free? And especially when you're dealing with, you know, hand grenades and uh, shoehorns, right? Meaning that as long as you're close, it's okay. It didn't need to be perfect. We did not need GIS at that time, right? We just needed to know it was in the neighborhood. It kind of looked like it belonged there and voila. Well, and Remy was very upset uh, in how the lack of innovation, especially as technology started to mature, where even to this day, Google continues to create images and then expects you to add the data to the image instead of the other way around where data 
now can generate geometry and images. So we did that uh, back in 2013, where we created our own gaming engine uh, in order to pull things like BIM files and CAD files and other things like that, uh, Esri shape files. And we created our own universe that could actually take a look at an individual building, an entire system like horizontal construction, like let's say like a roadway, entire neighborhoods and entire cities. And that's what got us really thinking, well, this is an amazing product because it's better than Google Earth, but are we going to create yet another tool where the industry takes it and it just doesn't allow that needle to rise to the way that we thought people would adopt it or they start using the product in ways that it was never intended, like Revit as a design tool. Whoever thought of that? It's not a design tool. It was never meant to be a design tool. So taking all that into case, uh, 2013, uh, we made the decision not to sell this product out to the market, um, that we were going to use it internally and actually eat our own dog food uh, and use our professional standing as architects, engineers, contractors, and operators and create an organization that would uh, develop what was then termed smart cities. It's been an awesome ride so far because we've gone from master planning to actually having, you know, bulldozers and diggers dig into the ground and they're pulling up these ideas up out of the ground. I think that's, you know, you know, Ralph and John, one of the things that I think that sometimes we need to level set ourselves with is that, you know, one of the great things about what you're bringing to market, not just for the Irish market, but globally through AC Hive is the wonderment of how an idea in someone's mind can become something that people live, breathe, work, and learn in. Right? I mean, just think about that, right? And the amount of convincing and the amount of, of ways of, uh, of making changes on the fly in order to get that thing going. And that's just one build. What an amazing industry we're in. I mean, he's selling like used cars, right? And it's probably an easier way of making money. What a great time, number one, we're in, right? You know, uh, thankfully, you know, thank God for Brexit. Uh, your, your Irish construction market is off the charts. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I never thought as an Irishman I'd thank the English, but thank you. Uh, you know, what what a gift. And then you take a look, uh, you know, across the pond, what's happening over here in the U.S. I have never seen an economy like this. And all the fundamentals are in place for still a long run. So, you know, there's this thing about innovation and disruption and and our industry is when is the right time? to start to implement change. Is it on a specific project and then trying to get other multi-enterprise workflows to work together at different times during a project? Yeah, good luck with that, right? That's changing tires 100 miles an hour. Or you do it internally, but then are you future shocking people like, wow, you know, those guys are talking, you know, some sort of language I don't even understand. I got you a building up out of the ground, mm. right? By right. BIM, BIM has, has to still today create 2D drawings. Because we still have to communicate with with the past. So the greatest challenge that AC Hive as a community has is you have to have one foot in the past and one foot in the future. And you hope that you're not going to have too much of a gap because then you're going to be stretched out like a ballerina. Right. And, and, and uh, you know, you see my body shape. That would never work. <laughs> wow. I mean, so mm-hmm. anybody who's not uh, shell shocked at, at this point in the conversation <laughs> about all the amazing things you, <laughs> you're doing uh, is obviously not paying attention. But um, I see we're joined by Patrick, your colleague. Uh, Pat, do you want to what join the it? conversation? I usually let Paul get at least the first 20 minutes in, then he needs to breathe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think you could add a lot as well because you've been involved uh, sort of on the 
let's say, the commercialization side and acquisitions and, you know, of a number of innovation projects. You know, I think that's a really important thing for people like, say, like John, who are startups who are looking to develop um, new products, new ideas, new better ways of doing things, trying to sort of map out the journey of how do I get a new idea to market? How do I get yeah. people interested in it? One of the challenges of innovation, I mean, there were so many points there, Paul, that I was my head spinning now. But one of the things is I seem to think innovation slows down when the market is busy. And uh, and innovation in construction or the AC sector is pretty low anyway. So it's not a sort of highly – I mean, there's a lot of innovation happening, but it happens at the project level. It doesn't happen sort of across projects and across sectors and – well, this is the irony of our industry globally. It has nothing to do with the U.S. market, Irish market, or elsewhere. We are in a business model where when times are bad, we don't have the resources to do proper R&D. When times are good, we don't have the time. So that's the irony of all this, which is why are you going to make a change and who's it going to benefit? When we started the AC Hackathon, I think one of the great themes that came out of it as we started it, which is now in its seventh year, which is kind of cool, uh, the first two were held at Facebook headquarters, which was a great collision of industries, the IT industry and the real estate industry coming together in the Facebook hack room in, in, in Mountain View. It was just fantastic. And what came out of it was a couple of lessons learned. One is just because you can, should you, meaning that there are a lot of folks out there that are very hungry to change things. But what we learned from the Facebook engineers was they, there were a lot of veterans there. It just wasn't like kids coming up with a quick idea and they know how to code. There's a lot of money over the past four or five years inside property tech, uh, you know, prop tech, construct tech, uh, you know, this idea that even some designers may be uh, looking at things like generative design, all these really, really cool ideas. And there's a lot of money being thrown at some of these things that as if they're businesses. But when you take a look at what really drives, uh, you know, adoption and that type of thing, is you better have some experience behind you of swinging a hammer, digging the dirt, designing something before you start to disrupt it. You can't disrupt something if you don't understand the existing process. Otherwise, you're a solution looking for a problem. And then I start seeing the marketing people get behind that dilemma. And we start terms like digital twin. What the F is that? Because because now you've just thrown a big elephant into the room. And I'm going to call a digital twin this, and I'm going to call a digital twin that, and all of a sudden it gets into the lexicon where on contracts from customers, they're saying, and as a deliverer, we want a digital twin. What? You know, that's like saying, saying you know, like, I want BIM at the end of, of the project. Well, describe it. You know, what, what does it mean? So what we're doing as owners now, uh, when we hire architects and engineers and contractors and suggest materials and performance specifications and equipment and appliances and things like that, is we're very careful about what we're requiring. And part of that is we could go deep into the weeds. And, you know, I see the work that AEC Hive does. And Ralph, you know, you, 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 you in particular, which I admire, is taking a look at what other industries use as a language, you know, ISO, ANSI. Oh of America, you know, these these types of standardization groups. But what we're seeing is that's going to take some time. It needs time to mature, it to, be, uh, to not only be described and re-described, but then mature to being part of the process so that it becomes transparent to the process, process and it's just work gets done. What we're finding is that classifications of what we want 
work a little better as the near term objective. It's not it, it will become long term. But when we say, listen, we want things done for design and construction in the U.S. classification nomenclature called master format. I know I'm getting 16 divisions of information. I know that division eight is doors and windows. Division nine is finishes. Division three is concrete. And guess what? Up and down the value chain of how we deliver projects in the U.S., I'm talking the same language to the local lumberyard, to the executive stakeholder, to the guy in the bank with the construction loan, all the way to the prime designers. We're all talking the same language. Mm. Now, what gets interesting is if you follow the life cycle of that building, and you start thinking of assets, both the physical asset and then the corresponding digital asset. There are certain performance indicators and classifications that will pivot and allow that same data, that digital DNA that everyone in the AC industry creates but doesn't understand their value. That digital DNA, there's going to be certain pieces of that information that's going to be important to a facility manager or an operator of those buildings. That's called uniformat in the U.S. There's uniclass and uni, all sorts oh. of things over in Europe, which are really, really important. I wish more people would focus in on the importance of that. And I'm not talking about, you know, Kobe spreadsheets. I'm talking about the importance of the pivot of, of a digital DNA of the built environment and how when it pivots, there's going to be certain information that drops off that and other pieces of information that rise in contextual value as you start getting into operations. So you're organizing and you're digi- when, when you're digitizing. You're- correct, correct, which, which means that all we ask as owners is we want data in this classification system. If you use an Excel spreadsheet to do that, but it's in that classification system, God bless you. If it's a Revit model, God bless you. I don't want to know how you're making your sausages. I'm ordering what sausage I want. Yeah. yeah. Okay? So, so that, that's a huge, huge, huge uh, thing that we need to get over now. Let's think about the complexity now of taking not just one building, but how about a neighborhood or a district of a city, or in the case of what we do from a greenfield, a complete city. We need to also have another pivot table that then reclassifies what happens when you start to aggregate that type of information, such as how many schools within these square kilometers, how many hospitals, how many homes, single family homes, multifamily homes, blah, 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 blah. And what do I do with that information to operate a city now that's digitized? And every door, every door in the city has the same classification. Could, but, 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 but here's a problem. And this is a real life situation. Uh, we were pulling a building up out of the ground and a healthcare facility and someone decided to put a element of a family, which I hate the term family, how that became part of our nomenclature. I'd I'd love to shoot the person that did that. It's assembly. (laughs) It's a freaking assembly. Okay. And in that wall, there is a door and that door has a certain swing, but to save time, you have some sort of CAD jockey, BIM jockey, whatever they're calling themselves today. And they just put a placeholder. Why? Because they're going to come back to it. Guess what? They never went back to it. So we got this great model with all left swinging doors everywhere. The door table was easy. Left swinging wood door, right? It's like, holy cow. So things may look really good, but it's like dating a mannequin. It looks good, but it has no brains. So and that's, that's probably a good a good point to to bring in because we want to talk about innovation and like mm. there's no doubt there's some problems in the the AEC sector in in the way we deliver projects like even at the, the macro scale like we globally we we can't deliver enough schools and hospitals and infrastructure we do it so slowly and so and 
at such great cost, not only financial cost, but great cost to the environment. And, you know, we literally like something like 30% of building materials that we produce end up back in landfill at great expense to the environment. We pull materials out of the ground. We make them into products. We deliver them to site. We pay people to carry them around, you know, and then they, uh, they end up back in a, in a skip going off to a landfill site. So it's just crazy. We, we And that's why we need innovation is that we, we can def- we've done great things. We've built fantastic things. But we can do it better. I suppose that's what we we want to look at in AEC Hive is how how can we do things better and why is the investment of time and money into looking at things so low? I mean, what what are your thoughts on that? I think we should embrace the absurdity of our industry. Uh, that it's warts and all. It's still magic to everyone else outside the industry about how buildings and roads, and bridges, and everything to do with the built environment actually gets built. It's magic. It's like I almost wish, uh, you know, we had like a magician's, you know, cloak over our buildings about how we're making our sausage. And voila, you know, we take the top of, you know, the cover off the building and it's there because that's the way it is to the people in the world. And then we have abstracts of our environment, such as like the financial world. Right. I mean, they think of the built environment and look at it in with such different you know, lenses that we're almost not talking about the same industry at times. Right. You know, try going for a construction loan. You know, it, it's absurd. But I think lying in the absurdity and embracing that uh, becomes a very, very big strength to every one of the stakeholders that's listening in on this podcast. Because of the absurdity of what of what is out there, you're exactly right, Ralph, where we 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 tend to beat ourselves up too much at times. Uh, and even with the newer stuff like BIM, you know, I, I can make fun of it all the time only because, well, <laughs> it's an amazing tool that has been hijacked by certain people where they make livings off of making things more complex because at least now they have a built-in client that's going to pay forever. Yeah, That's the identification of something that needs to go away. And that's just in the delivery mechanism. I think what you were talking about before was spot on uh, where – we're now talking about reimagining the craziness of taking elements up out of the earth, creating it into a form that we can use for either structural, uh, you know, ornamental, uh, you know, functional ways. And then at the end of the day, we put it back into the earth. But it's it's not the way that that that, that we should, um, you know. I'm the farthest thing from a Birkenstock-wearing, tree-hugging person out there. I, I don't need to wear a cape for it. Um, just thinking through what that process is, meaning that classifying things, are you literally going for the cheapest thing possible? But, you know, when you put into account the carbon, shipping it from the manufacturing site all the way to your job site, that you're more or less killing the environment, yet you've done a, uh, you know, a sustainable lead building you know uh, it, it's absurd you know that's not what happens you know so if we really 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 want to take it to the integrated supply chain and into you know life cycle product management i think we have a lot to learn um and we don't have all the answers which is good because i think through the mistakes if we're willing to admit them uh and then learn from those things that's where best practices emerge from 
because not everyone's going to want to have the courage to go out there and try something new. Some of the stuff I've seen you, uh, I, uh, you know, I love the new term greenwash where it looks all good and you've got your lead platinum thing up in the lobby, but holy shit, the way that you are creating your operational environment, I, I mean, you're using more energy than you should just in the operations, which is why I like that lead is moving from the design and construction phase into operations to actually keep your pretty plaque up there. Uh, you know, so if those are the goals, I think that that's one step, um, but the art of embracing the absurdity of what we're in the middle of, I think then comes down to the contextual level of the local person and the responsibility that everyone on this phone call and the community of AC Hive should take into heart. What are you doing every day to improve your role in this process? And if you can connect the dots and that role can be brought up to a community conversation, well, that's where the magic happens. Not one person has all these answers. We're too complex. Now, to your point, you know, the hospitals, the schools, the, the, uh, you know, the community centers, the, you know, the, the homes. Every one of those is a building type that have different types of pressures and different types of challenges associated with them. But when you start having the conversations, we're not looking for a silver bullet. What we're looking for is also not one song. What we're looking for is an entire hymnal. So that we actually now have pathways that we can move forward and move the needle a little bit. These conversations aren't new, Ralph, right? We're, we're just talking about different tools because, you know, uh, you know, 60, 70 years ago, the U.S., we were talking about how many deaths could we count on in the budget line item of our budgets to carry the cost of death compensation. That was real. That's and true. then and, and then finally we got, you know, OSHA involved. And now, if you have a recordable injury, that's a big deal, let alone, uh, you know, deaths are almost unheard of in construction sites. I mean, they're, they're now not the normal, they're, they're the exception. Yeah, uh, yeah. So what happens, you know, 50 years from now, when we have the people right now that are pushing the envelope of awareness, of understanding what you're specifying may not be the best thing. It may come from the large scale manufacturer that you have trust about, but guess what? That, that, why don't you give that local group a shot? Right. And start being creative. I'm especially talking about the architects out there. Right. Material science should be taught at a higher level in all education, because that is the art of what we're about. It's not going into some brochure and picking out, you know, metal studs and, you know, drywall and, you know, slapping up some siding. A monkey can do that. That's why we have real estate developers. (laughs) You you made an interesting point uh, earlier about. BIM being hijacked, and, and I thought that was quite good because you know that's what we're seeing on projects at the moment is that designers are using BIM as a tool to produce drawings. You know, so they they're not using it as a as a means to create a digital version of the building. Uh, they, I mean, they are in the background, but the actual thing they're handing over is a set of drawings and PDFs, and then the contractors are getting those drawings, often not getting the model, and uh, having to recreate the model. And because there's a BIM requirement, they, you know, they, they're using, the, uh, they're building the model again for the purposes of, of constructing, but then they're printing out drawings which people on site are using uh, <laughs> you know, to build the building. Uh, but then the building that's actually built is not reflective of the, the model they've built because people have made changes <laughs> on site. And so, you know, so it's just a mess if you think about it. And it all comes because people have taken a traditional process and hijacked a piece of software to do something old instead of something new. There's no digital thread <laughs> that, that 
travels, you know, <laughs> from design to construction to operations. Um, so, Ralph, let's <laughs> let, let's take a field condition, right? You could have the the most decorated BIM veteran, you know, number one speaker at Autodesk University blah, 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 on the architectural side and does beautiful BIM. You could have uh, a, an amazing GC that actually can take that particular architectural model, modify it a bit, uh, maybe for some clash detection and stuff like that. And they are kings and wizards of that particular area of Ireland, let's say, for using BIM. Then you get out to the field and the guy hanging the doors wants to have a drawing because that's what he knows because he wants to get home. He wants well, well, first of all, he wants to put his hours in. He wants to get paid. He wants to go home and watch England, Ireland this weekend. That's what we're dealing with. And this guy doesn't care if, if BIM comes in a snow cone or on his iPad or on a piece of paper. So the number one piece of information that I look at as the guiding principle on every project site today are either the blueprints or the A4 size of the paper that have a lot of coffee stains on it. Why? Because that's the oldest piece of information with a lot of red marks, and that's the captured information. Right now, in order to go back to the model, which then you got the BIM jockey, then to have to make the change, I could do for two seconds hand drawing to actually solve the problem in the field at that moment in time. That's the dilemma. That's the absurdity of our business, which is great because guess what? I can now identify in that particular workflow maybe some workarounds, right? And and start the process of digital communication in the appropriate deliverable. If if we're thinking that everyone has to learn Revit in order to operate a project, we're kidding ourselves, right? If anything, Revit should be almost be like a router that says, uh, or, or actually any BIM. I'm just using Revit just because, well, it was mine. Yeah. <laughs> and and using that as a router to actually put out the proper types of information, I don't care if it's A4. I don't care if it's on paper. Guess what? If that's what we have to communicate today to pull buildings up out of the ground and learn from it, that the next generation may actually get that change on an iPad. And maybe it's on like a Bluebeam PDF reader. That's a good step in the right direction. Eventually, we will get to an, uh, you know a web-based or cloud-based model that's dynamic, that operates through AI and voice control and all that other stuff. We're building towards that. But is that the end? Why, why is that so slow? Because if you look at, say, manufacturing, uh, like cars mm-hmm. and Boeings and whatever, that, I mean, they're not drawing a set of design intent drawings and, and then trying oh, to... Oh, they're just as screwed up as we are. Uh, come on. Yeah. Look at, they're not cobbling together look at, a, a, a Boeing in a factory and sort of moving things around. Hey, can you say the 737 <laughs> Max? Come on. You know, they're absurd in their own way, right? Yeah. What they have down. And what they do, what a lot of us don't do in our industry, is that they document process workflows. That's their secret key. And they have a controlled environment of manufacturing, which is why, you know, we're taking a major headfirst plunge into the world of, uh, you know, uh, factory-based prefabrication panels, volumetric uh, uh, modular, all sorts of new types of delivery systems because it's our age's design-build. You remember when like design build was like, oh, you can't do that, right? And now it's just, oh, it's just another delivery mechanism. If it works for that project, that's great. We're looking at it that same way with the prefabrication world, the manufacturing of the, of the industrialization of the construction industry. Is it for everyone? No. Is it the end all for everyone? No. It's just another delivery mechanism, but a very important one because you have to have documented workflows, which give you what 
discipline, which means what? We can finally standardize. ISO in the field is going to be very difficult. ISO in a factory has to happen. We're talking black, black belt level six sigma shit. That's where we're getting to. So, you know, BIM's greatest asset of leaps of faith and putting benchmarks in place is in the world of prefabrication of modular, driving machines, things like CNC machines and whatnot. That's its next evolution in BIM 2.0, because it's very, very difficult to put those measures into place when you have on a specific project, you have super users to non-users, and they're all expected to work with BIM. So that's why we say, you know, we look at it like a router. Um, that's its greatest asset right now. Uh, to be able to push out what those deliverables are, including hand drafting. <laughs> I mean, you know, take a picture, throw it up there. You know, uh, I, you know, I can't wait for the first person to do like BIM Twitter per project. Right, just Twitter it up. Whoop, there you go. And all those tweets are the conversations and the and the uh, you know the the digital assets that make up what that thing is. So what's the history about what that thing is? Because right now, the worst thing about BIM is that it doesn't tell you the history. It doesn't give you the Oh, it doesn't give you daily reports. It doesn't give you two-week look-aheads. It doesn't give you what decisions were made, how the sausage was made. Um, so that's why when we go into, like what you're saying, into this life cycle approach, into FM and, and operations, uh, you know, how do you build upon a weak deck of cards and expect to run a building off of that? You know, is the AV box exactly there? Which comes back to, Ralph, something even bigger I think AC Hive as community should take a look at is – when you're delivering things for permits and inspections and things like that, are you developing your deliverable for the permit or are you actually doing the right thing? And it's a gut check because sometimes you want to keep the project going. We need the permit. Yeah, just throw that in there. We're not going to do it like that. Don't worry about it. We'll fix it in the field. <laughs> right? That conversation never happens, right? You know, we have to real gut check if we really, really want to put digitalization onto the construction process. Because once you put a digital lens on any process, it shows warts and all. It's going to show you where the transparencies are for uh, who's making money, who's not, who's cutting corners, who's not. And people don't like that. Well, guess what? That's what BIM does. So unless you want to do it the right way, which may add cost and time and everything else, maybe BIM's not for you and good luck with your project. So, so I mean, that's, that's going to be a key for how AC Hive gets around the moral and ethical issues of using technology in the construction industry is that someone's going to win, but more importantly, someone's going to lose. And the people that are going to yelp the loudest of, well, this didn't work are the ones that are either going to be not needed anymore, technology is taken over, or they're going to lose money yeah. or found out that they're not necessary. Mm -hmm. So just watch how this conversation happens over the next five to 10 years. The people that squeak the loudest are the ones that are going to lose the most. Yeah. And I think that's happened in, in other sectors. You've seen the winners and the losers, and uh, and usually it's the incumbents, you know, the, the, the people who have business models that are well-established on wasteful practices that uh, are going to lose and uh, and going to lose big. I suppose one one of the things we're trying to do in AC Hive is not just focus purely on technology and innovation, but also mm. focus on people because um, I think it's also fair to say there's, there's quite a strong disconnect in the AEC sector amongst 
between people, so between the disciplines, between uh, various stakeholders, people don't understand each other. They, you know, whether you're a real estate investor or a designer or a contractor or or a guy in the field or somebody in a factory, it's as if you speak different languages and can't talk to each other. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and yet somehow it's kind of, that we have I kind of call it I kind of call it a marriage. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, like good, like good like it's a bad marriage. <laughs> that's to be determined, right? Yeah. You know, and it's actually in the eye of the beholder, right? Because there's certain architects that when you know you have the trust of a GC that where, where you've delivered good projects in the past, who's the first person you're going to reach out to, right? Um, yeah. it, it's all about the local relationships. Right. And relationships are all built on trust or, or mistrust. Like, I'm never going to use that plumber again. You know, what an asshole, you know, all that type of stuff. So, it, you know, the, the the localization of that is huge. What we learned uh, uh, prior to TDG, uh, I was a corporate officer of a Fortune 500 company called K. Havnanian Homes, K. Hav, New York Stock Exchange listed company, eight and a half billion of revenue, uh, 20,000 McMansions around the United States every year. And what we learned was that, and this is something AC Hive should really think about, right? On a national level, we bought up local local folks, uh, either home builders, that type of thing, because they understood the relationships in with building departments, zoning ordinances, this thing and that thing. And we needed that local knowledge, right? So that was huge, the experience level on the local level. The secondary level was that these local builders underneath our processes. So we were like the process managers, the process owners, we called ourselves. So we came up with processes for everything about, uh, you know, scheduling. Uh, we did this thing called, uh, just in time. Uh, and then we modified that to lean because lean became a hot thing. And then we turned it into uh, a really interesting, uh, model based on the processes we learned from Boeing. Uh, and we start to document things. And, you know, everyone had to become a process documenter. Uh, we, which was awesome. It was a great experience to do that. And what we learned was that we could do um, uh, a continuous improvement cycle uh, that would shorten the amount of cycles it would take to pull a home up out of the ground. You know, these homes were like, you know, 2,500, 3,000, up to 5,000 square foot homes, uh, you know, 500 square meter homes, big, right? And the idea was for every day that we could save, you know, to the bottom line, it was, you know, over $2 million in the black, so you can imagine that's a big deal if you can shave, you know, four or five days off of something. That's bottom line dollars, right? And what we found was that the local contractors that we would hire, the subs, you know, the framers, the painters, the roofers, all these guys, uh, were really concerned about two things. And it was really eye-opening. One was their position in the schedule. In other words, who was the trade before them? And who's the trade after them? Because they were constantly pissed off, especially with large national organizations like us that would come in and hire, you know, uh, like, let's say a, uh, you know, a tile layer. Right. And all of a sudden now the plumber had to come in to put the finished, you know, commode and sink and tub in because because the tile work is done. Right. Uh, or vice versa. It depended on the home and 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 the type of uh, of uh uh, you know, work test when we put into place. But, but just to use that, you know, tile to, to toilet finisher. The tile guy really didn't give a shit about the next trade. 
So what they would do is just leave it at the end of the day that they were done with their job and they'd say they got done and they get paid. The trade after them would actually spend half the morning cleaning up, which meant they wasted half a day, yet they're only being paid for putting that thing in. And now they've they've lost a half a day wages. Right. So the idea was to create trust between the different trades uh, and how we did that was was called even flow production where we started a home and we finished a home every day in a community of like, let's say 50 homes. And because we would then uh, literally take them out for, uh, you know, beers after, after work and, uh, you know, treat them to lunches and, uh, and workshops and that type of thing, which sounds very soft and fluffy, but what it did was it created a relationship between people that were disconnected to finally have conversations with each other. And suddenly, because they were constantly seeing the same guys, the, the trade that would leave a broom swept thing behind, then the next trade would do the same for the trade after them. And that way. Now, that's something unless you're in the field, you have no notion that that's even an issue. Yet it's a big effing deal. The other thing going through even flow production is that it puts everyone onto a daily report time clock, which means that the two week look aheads, including the float within the schedule now, can be managed better, including weather delays and this thing and that thing which meant that there was a periodic way, like every Friday or every Thursday, that you knew you were getting paid. And guess what? I'm competing against another home builder for that local talent. I want their A team. The fight for talent all the time. And if you can pay them on time, you know you're going to get the A team as opposed to your competitors. So what what you were doing there is, I mean, you you probably didn't use this term, but you were creating a community of people that could function better together. Uh, as an organism, supported by innovation and technologies and better processes. Correct. And, Correct. Uh, yeah. So, so it, it was the, a deliberate um, making of a of a community. You know that Correct. That, would, that would function together. That's, that would that, work. That that would work beyond one project. And I think yeah, that was, yeah. right because you know it, you know in our world if it's a large enough project. It's like uh, the, you know, the comparable of that is a motion picture, right, mm. where you can have, you know, Iron Man and have a great job and kick it out of the park. But guess what? In Iron Man 2, you're not going to get everyone that was on Iron Man 1. Same thing in the industry. You may have like a kick-ass team. We did BIM and we solved these problems. We were, you know, under budget and, uh, you, you know, we, you know, and we brought it in, you know, on time and blah, 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 blah. The next project, you could have one weak wheel, and what you think was magic turns out to be absurd. Yeah. Yeah. So so what I really got from that, and I think that was a fantastic example, is that um, concerted effort and deliberateness of creating this uh, well-functioning organism or group of people, that that it wasn't just sort of, let's, yeah, this sounds like a good idea, let's do it, but it was managed, you know, through your workflows and your various things with with the aim of creating this community, which uh, functioned a lot better than most uh, crews on a site would, would function. Correct. And our biggest yeah. measure at the end of the day was this thing called the J.D. Powers Quality Award, um, because because you can cut corners with, well, supposedly cut corners, but improve a process, let's say, and save some time. The ultimate thing is, did you keep the same quality level? And those quality awards are based upon uh, a three, six, and then 12-month uh, survey independently done by J.D. Powers here in the U.S. on people's uh, perceptions of the quality of the home that they bought. 
So it was out of your hands. And the key was to keep them as happy as possible. So the idea was that we would keep, uh, you know, a, a, a community leader there that, you know, if there's any punch list items, anything that would pop up within that three, six, uh, three month milestone, six month milestone, then one year milestone, we, we bent over backwards in order to make that happen. Pretty interesting, right? Like who does that in our industry, especially on the commercial side, following up, you know, three, six, 12 months later and be there on, you know, no questions asked, punch listing things. Let's get it. Right. Which meant that we don't want a long punch list because that costs us a lot of money. So the key was, how do you balance the quality level that you still either want to maintain or increase quality while saving time and money through technology and make technology as transparent to the process as possible? That's a challenge as a global community. Um, And again, when when you put that self-imposed thing of quality 12 months after the handover of a building to a customer, um, I think that changes some of your disruptive ideas, right? Because right. it's all just throwing things together and running away as fast as possible. Like, hey, man, you bought it. I mean, that's what <laughs> Good luck <Right>? with that. <laughs> right? Yeah, right? But, but, you know, what happens when you put yourself at risk? That's a challenge I have to everyone in the industry. And now specifically, you know, in the Irish industry. I mean, you know, I'm watching – uh, you know, you know, as you know, I've been, uh, you know, go, you know, coming to Ireland, uh, at least once a year for my entire life, you know, since, uh, 1965, actually. I was born late 64. And my first travel, my first plane ride was to Ireland, right? Uh, my dad's from Donegal, my mom's from Meath, and I have 52 first cousins to prove that I am Irish. <laughs> hey man, the 1970s TV in Ireland, no rubbers and bad TV. What are you going to do? So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, I've watched, uh, you know, everything th- through the troubles, through the Celtic Tiger times to now this unbelievable time. And I'm watching, you know, farmland that I remember, you know, driving through, you know, just, just literally, you knew where Dublin ended. Now, where the hell does it end? You know, <laughs> you know, like, you know, you know, like when Navin becomes a suburb of Dublin. Wow. You know, holy cow, this growth. But here's the key. Um, we're actually looking at real estate differently, and I think this is something the, the Hive community could start to out, actually have a conversation and actually have something to say, where you're, you know, you take a subdivision, and what, what are you doing? You know, you're, you're continuing on a process that hasn't really been thought through, which is where this conversation does not need just to be between the trades, the designers, and the constructors. There also needs to be a conversation with homeowner association potentially, or even more importantly, the people that are in pre-design and pre-construction, pre-project, you know, the folks with the money, you know, the, the, the developers that have the idea. Because when I start seeing these subdivisions, uh, you know, you're turning into a country of, of poster stamps, you know, it's rectangles and squares. What happened when we stopped designing for the automobiles that y'all are, you know, taking on? Uh, and the traffic's only getting worse and more motorways are, are not the answer. But what happens when we start to take a look at the transportation sector intersecting itself into the real estate sector through things like autonomous vehicles, not driverless cars, but public transportation, where you do not need turn radiuses. You do not need the width of streets we have today. In certain cases, you don't need curbs. What does it look like then when you place your buildings in the optimal place for either capturing wind, solar, all the things that are important, rather than 
just making up a cul-de-sac and starting to chop things up in rectangles and, 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 and squares and positioning the building properly and calling that location, location, location. Guess what? Someone moved our cheese. That stopped. Yeah. Because a new type of layout that's human-centric yet data-driven, Ralph, that is the start of the new slate. Because yeah. now you're – right? And those are going to be those smart communities, not because you've got 5G – it's because they're laid out properly. They're they, they they are walkable. They're based upon things that that people from outside our industry can understand, like the UN Sustainable D- D- Development Goals. Those 17 goals are gold for what we do as an industry. Because guess what? We're all talking now a common language. You know, we position our buildings: sustainability, water, energy, education. Uh, you know, healthcare. All these things are vitally important, and boy, are they important because just take healthcare today. If we had cities designed properly, I don't think this coronavirus would have spread as much as it has. Period. And I'll go on, on, on the record for that because we did not design it with wellness intended. Right. Uh, you know, the idea of designing things from the beginning with stable development goals as the common language, along with wellness to say, you know, is getting in a car or have you seen these new segways? You know, the segway, which is that sort of, uh, yeah. uh Gravity-based uh, scooter thing. Well, you—they actually have a seat now. It's like it's like this white plastic thing that sits on top of it, so that you look like those characters from Wall-E. You know how the humans like <laughs> yeah. walk? That exists. They're selling it in L.A. You get all these people with these these earbuds with their latte with sunglasses on, sitting in these things, having a conversation. It's like. If there's a picture of a dickhead, that's it. But these things exist. It's like we're going to turn into blobs if we're not careful, right? So, so that's why we're in this really, really cool position to start to say, you know, enough of that crap. What would happen if we really started putting in 10,000 steps that's built into the environment that we're creating instead of just taking value of real estate by chopping up and saying, well, because you have X amount of square meters, uh, you know, you're going to be in this ballpark for what the value is of that home. What happens? When if home actually is in the context of the community, the physical community, the digital community, and the human community. I think that's going to be a huge challenge for the hive as a community, and then outwardly having other conversations with other groups to say, hey, here's where the essence is, so that when we do have these kids that are coming up, this whole generation that knows how to code, and that's just part of their skill set, right? Outside of AEC, they just know how to code, they're coding for the right thing, not just because they're coding, because they can code, right? That you give them, making games, you give them make something real. Yeah. Well, making games or making stupid disruptive technology that don't make any sense looking for a, looking for a problem. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what about um, – we spoke a little bit about process and innovation in, in the way we do things. Uh, you know, what, what there's, there's a constant sort of um, – talk about low productivity in construction versus other sectors. And at a simple level, you could say, well, it's because we keep doing stuff twice. We do it the the quick and nasty way first, and then we have to come back and fix it up later. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, like, so you'd say, look, if you just stop doing things twice and do it once the first time, uh, do it correctly, you you could double your productivity and and therefore, you know, you could build twice as much for the same uh, input and, uh, you know what? How do we look at the way, the sort of attitude people have to doing stuff, and uh, and <laughs> increase their productivity? 
So yeah, there's a reason. Technology will be a part of that, I'm sure. And, and what the, the culture that you spoke about earlier of trying to get people in a sort of a community culture that understands how they impact each other will be part of that. But yeah. on the, on so, the process so, side, what are you, what are your thoughts? Is it any wonder that we work sounds like work and that's why it failed? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you know, this, this whole thing of, uh, you know, doing it twice, three times, four. You know, rework in the field, of course, is a, it's a big bugaboo. Um, uh, you know, we've been challenged by the pyramids, right? Um, and I, the, I'm sure they didn't bring the, build the pyramids twice, did they? No, they had to do three of them because the first one was the prototype. You know, <laughs> they, the smaller one and the medium one. Ah, the third one. That's the one we keep. What do we do the other ones? So <laughs> <laughs> re- rewriting history on purpose to fit the context. But um, so, oh, but Ralph, you know, there's no silver bullet on that one. Yeah. Um, but 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 what there is, I, I think, is uh, hope and challenge. Uh, and the strategy should never be based on hope. But the hope is that through leadership with certain organizations in our industry, uh, that they start to provide examples that we can either take save as approaches or at least modify from those proper examples as, as we start to move forward, because, you know, we're fast moving into a very scary part of the industry. Uh, the industry is never going to go away. The same reason why architects will never go away, because someone needs someone to sue. Right. Period. And at the end of the day, when you're talking about, uh, you know, the delivery mechanisms and who's going to be behind it, uh, we're looking strongly uh, at our main competition being the high tech companies of Silicon Valley. Um, and here's a case in point. They have figured out that number one, our industry in that part of the country, uh, is not up to, uh, meeting their needs. Google and Facebook in, in particular, who have a crap load of money and a real need that they cannot hire people to work on their campuses in the Silicon Valley towns of Mountain View, Benmo Park, and elsewhere. And they can't count on our industry to actually deliver affordable homes. And I'm, talk- I'm not talking about like, you know, poor people, affordable housing type thing. I'm talking about affordable homes at like 500,000 US dollars a piece, right? Oh. Um, so what they've done over the past uh, 18 months is quietly uh, partnered and uh, bought, in certain cases, uh, prefabrication uh, plants, in and around uh, both the East Bay Area and the Silicon Valley Bay Area uh, that are now producing and they have master planned entire worker towns. Uh, in the case of Google, uh, they purchased Moffett Field, an old uh, abandoned Air Force base. It was actually uh, it has one of the world's largest hangars for the Spruce Goose. Howard Hughes's immense aircraft that to, to this day was the largest aircraft that ever flew. It only flew about 18 inches, but it did. Right. Um, and what they've done is that, that they've converted that particular uh, hangar into being like a, uh, a WeWork type of space uh, for their employees. And they've surrounded it with a community of beautifully designed multifamily homes, all designed, built and operated by Google. Mountain View and Menlo Park, uh, those two communities are being totally redesigned as a downtown area and elsewhere of total community where it's not just the prefabrication piece of it, but it's exactly what you're talking about. They are bringing in electricians, plumbers, mechanical folks, framers, all these guys, 
that are now going to take like the Kahnanian model, that they're going to be working on projects for the next three to five years together as a family and a team. These are the things that we should be paying attention to because what's going to happen after they're after they've completed their own backyard? They're going to say, well, we're doing it better than the construction industry. Let's go out and compete. That's what we're saying. So I think this is going to come fast and furious where we're not expecting it. It has to come from outside the industry, but we will adopt, we will adapt, and we will change. The thing is, do we want to start leading and be in control of our destiny, or are we going to do what we've done for the history of the modern construction industry along with the old, uh, you know, apprenticeship, uh, you know, meets craftsman time of way back when, where we were influenced by – by events outside of our industry and we just adapt. And that's the great challenge for our industry today. Is yeah, either I think, well, that's, and that's, I suppose, something we're trying to tackle with AEC Hive and, you know, John and I have, have spoken, we have different backgrounds, but John's, you know, from the software development background, I'm from a, so the architectural and consulting background. Um, but what we're saying, like, there's no point waiting, you know, just see what happens and be obliterated. That's, uh, it's probably not a good strategy that, you know, let's let's try and encourage people within the AEC sector that have the knowledge of the AEC sector to to come together, to to think about um, better ways of doing things, whether those things are technology driven or process driven or culture, community driven. But you know, like, let's talk about these things. And um, so I suppose the question like if you had to pick somebody, just make, maybe take John as an example, as a, a startup person in, in the AEC sector that has an idea or has some ideas and wants to drive those forward. I mean, you and Patrick have been involved in this process for many years of how you bring ideas to market, how, how you make them scale, how you get them acquired, etc. What sort of advice would you give to people out there listening to this podcast? who are small but have a great idea and they want to pursue it, um, how do they go about it? Or how let, me, uh, yeah, let, let me frame up like a 30,000-foot view, and then I want to hand it off to Patrick to, yeah. to talk about uh, you know, his experience of literal startups being, uh, you know, in his case, acquired uh, and what those steps are, again, from a macro view. But just, mm. just you know, you know, John, uh, you know, what you're doing is uh, Don Quixote-ish. Right. Um, where, uh, you know, the aspirations, and the ambitions are to be applauded. And I think that that's a huge, big thing that you should keep in the back of your mind that, uh, you know, as you move forward, uh, you know, with these solution sets uh, that will change over time, you know, as well as you discover market needs and whatnot. Uh, the idea is not to dwell on the negative, uh, you know, challenges, um, but to Look at them as positive challenges. And sometimes that's really hard to do because, you know, you may be, you know, going down a certain way and you have this customer that, uh, you know, will, you know, has a specific need. You're trying to get it adopted and don't move away from that tuning fork that sets you off on this thing. Uh, there's a lot of good in our industry, a lot of good. I don't think that that is embraced enough. I think that the positivity, um, of understanding to embrace your successes, um, and, uh, you know, uh, and then balance that with not the arrogance that we see sometimes with early success uh, is is a huge key. It's that balance of of understanding, OK, we've taken that next step, but we haven't crossed the finish line. And you may never. But just getting to the starting line 
man, I just wish I could, you know, go save as a million times with people like yourself, John, because the industry needs that. So, uh, Pat, do you want to, uh, uh, you know, talk a little bit about, you know, your startup experience? Yeah, uh, my background, John, is uh, actually where Paul and I met was in the buzzsaw days, even a little bit before that. And it was really you had a lot of people coming to the table with grandiose ideas. And the first thing you got to do is step back and say, what am I solving? I can't, you know, I can't be, I can't be, well, I always, Paul hates this. I, I, you can't be the entire chocolate cake. You got, if you want to really process and enjoy a chocolate cake, you got to break it into pieces. They have great uh, satisfaction over time. If you sit down and try to swallow the entire chocolate cake in the first sitting, you have a very short window of pleasure followed by a long window of pain. Um, and some of the recent experiences, actually, in some of our partners with TDG, we have one, it's a point solution that's working on solving a point problem, getting field people to do their daily reports. And the idea was, hey, let's let's have the system call them and see what they're doing and have them just respond to the questions over over the line and it'll populate into your to their system and then through APIs populate into say a project information management system. What we found, and it was funny because I, I went out and talked to the top 40 general contractors in the United States. And the first one I made connection with, he goes, this, you got to change it. I can't have a system calling my guys every day. It's like your mother calling you every day at four o'clock. They won't, they'll just stop answering. And yeah. so it, that led to a modification. You've got to be able to modify and address that. I look at BIM Launcher and some of the things you're doing there, and I'm sure people dealing with Procore versus Aconex, there, there may be similarities, but there might be differences. So flexibility, but, you know, don't try to be everything to everyone. You know, the old adage, you know, go out to a group of people and ask them to answer the question, what is Lotus Notes? And you'll get multiple different answers. And then ask them to make that answer in one sentence. That's really fun to watch. But at the end of the day, you've got to have focus. Don't try to be everything to everyone and, you know, address the pain that you found. That's kind of the simple mantra I've always followed. And, John, do you have any questions for Pat or Paul? Because I think we, we're getting to the hour now, so we, we could probably talk all day. But uh, <laughs> um, I've really enjoyed speaking with you both over the last hour, and I've been taking notes like a, like a madman here on my fourth <laughs> page. Um, I think I could write a thesis to analyze what what you've said, Paul. And to summarize it, you hear about these shared pains and responding to them, but it seems to be is about responding to the shared goals of the different stakeholders involved in the process, finding that common overlap, which works for everyone, and underpinning that with um, the reason that everyone should engage with, with this process. And... I think that's it's really interesting, um, and I think that different different people to sit back and say, hey, yeah, look, our productivity is suffering, we're doing rework, etc. But the real reason for that is that everyone is just pulling at their own, I suppose, goals as as an internal organisation. And if we could bring those together, have more transparency in a project, uh, as as you've illustrated, that which would be when you worked in that big construction company that you were given a, given the example about the tradespeople. Um, I think that, like I've seen that pattern when I was in university, I led a team a team of um, cleaners 
And, mm. you know, even when I'm dealing with my software teams today in, in BIM Launcher, to that feeling to hear in your story, like we want, we had the exact same thing when we, we wanted <laughs> to be the fastest and we wanted to have no snags. That was the goal for our team. And we worked amazingly well together. We filled in behind <laughs> each other. Um, it was an incredible operation and something that I look back on and still think, wow, yeah, we did a really good job there. Um, so I think that startups, including myself, and um, what we should be focusing on is the the goals of the clients, um, because they're the highest or the ones with all the money, it seems, um, <laughs> or the I suppose the the pains of those guys. And for, from a strategy point of view, looking at the different stakeholder value chains that are involved in the process, and then just begin chipping away at them one problem at a time and just to summarize then when Patrick said look you can't you can't um, eat the entire cake cut that down into one point solution and being realistically as, as a startup be looking looking at um, and I'm not sure whether you actually got to look at my website recently but we've just released a product called the deep model checker and that solves one problem um, it checks the quality of models as they're coming from the design team to the client and it is really challenging to be a, a startup founder and um, Okay. I just really want to say thank, thanks to both of you for, for clarifying and helping me create clarity in my own head. And I think well, I, thank you, John. I, I could summarize Paul and Patrick, um, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll speak about rugby, because Patrick, I know you're a, a keen rugby player, and, and you've played in Ireland, and, uh, and I'm sure you'll be watching Ireland and England mm-hmm. play, play this weekend. But... Uh, no, no, no. You're going to see Ireland beat England this week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but I think the the thing you can you learn and and you you kind of spoke about that, Paul, is if 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 the team is playing well together, everybody has a different function within the team, you know, and they have different sets of skills and different jobs to do, whatever. But if the team is functioning well together, it's the team that wins, and they're all. That's right. You know, if one person played a little bit harder for a few minutes than the next person, as long as the, the, the team is working together and functioning together, and you gave a great example, culture, people, and community combined with skills and processes and ways of doing things. What do you think, Patrick? Can you can we learn, can the AC sector learn from from rugby on how I, to function? I fully agree. It's uh, uh and I've I've heard this speech before 15 work well as one but 15 don't work very well if there's 15 different ideas yeah and and my, my specialty is a scrummage and it's eight is one moves a truck eight talking to each other moves nothing but yeah. air and that, that's where it is here and i've and i've been in the startups that dealt with construction and uh architects and yes there was there still is you know the cultural silos and getting them to work together and that's where you have some contractors making their modifications to build their teams out. And it still comes back to that. Um, you know, it's got to be 15 as one. I mean, look at, look at the game last weekend or two weekends ago. So that's Wales it. didn't play, Wales didn't play as 15 as one. Ireland did. So that's what we're trying to achieve with AC Hive is trying to align, align people's thinking around, um, as you said, Paul, the absurdity of what is AEC at the moment and what Potentially, it could be if if people started 
kind of working together, functioning better together, using technologies not for – I love the example you gave, hijacking BIM, because that's exactly what we see now. People are using a very sophisticated digital tool for a very old paper-based process, which is uh, – <laughs> like that's, that's the, the absurdity. Well, I'd like yeah, to like was, thank you both for I do, I, input. I, and, um, I just have uh, one last thing. From yeah, about. yeah. It's an important one for John. Uh, congratulations on the code checking, because I think that there needs to be more tools like that. But if you could do me one favor, if it finds more than like five instances of like really, really bad modeling, could it like do like a like an AR thing where like, you know, like it has like a booby prize or something and it could be published up to social media saying that stuff sucks? <laughs> like, like, like this is the award for worst BIM today, you know, and just have like a ranking or something. It would just be brilliant because it would force people to do good BIM. <laughs> and I, I don't, I'm half serious about that. <laughs> Got to start calling out bad BIM. You know? or, or an electric so. shock through the mouse next time you open it. Ralph did it exactly. Uh, Ralph, I was having the same thought. Why couldn't you attach it to a taser and the project manager sits on that taser? <laughs> Bim for the rest of us. <laughs> anyway, uh, Paul, good. Patrick, fantastic. Really, as always, it's a pleasure to speak to you both. And uh, it's really incredible what the Digi Group are doing, just how far ahead you are. It's uh, inspiring. So thanks for the inspiration. And we look forward to speaking to you both again. Thank you, Ralph and John.